0: Hello, and welcome to Meet the Leader, a podcast where the world's top leaders share how they're tackling the world's toughest challenges. Today, our leader is Puneet Renjan, the global CEO of Deloitte.
1: The strategy and what we need to do is pretty clear. Um, The execution of that and being relentlessly persistent on the execution is going to be where we will really have impact.
0: He'll talk about what it means to be relentlessly persistent, and how he's using that mindset to tackle big goals, like mitigating the effects of climate change or bridging global opportunity gaps. Subscribe to Meet the Leader on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review us. I'm Linda Lucina from the World Economic Forum, and this is Meet the Leader.
1: The future is not preordained. We've been dealt a hand. We accept that we will do our best to play that hand and make sure that our future is ordained the way we view it to be ordained.
0: That's Puneet Renjan, the global CEO of Deloitte, the world's largest professional services firm. Puneet knows well how fortunes can shift. As a teen in a small town in India, he needed to leave the boarding school he'd been attending because his family faced financial difficulties and those days found him toggling between classwork and factory work. He also understands shaping your own destiny. And just a few years later, a Rotary scholarship brought him sight unseen to Oregon, where he earned his master's, charting a life for himself that most people back home never expected or imagined. Knowing that destiny isn't fixed is a great foundation for two big Deloitte initiatives. World Class, which looks to improve the futures of 50 million people around the world through things like job training or improving educational outcomes, and world climate, which seeks to go net zero by 2030, and which seeks to empower its teams and the people they impact to shift to a low carbon economy. Puneet will talk about how any leader can be relentlessly persistent to meet big goals and the classic tools that anyone can use along the way. He'll also explain why you should never allow yourself to be typecast and how ignoring some sensible professional advice once changed his life for the better. But first, we'll start with the world-class program and the importance of expanding opportunity.
1: Our purpose is to make an impact that matters for the clients that we serve, the people that we hire and develop, and the communities that we live and work in. And one of the most precious resources that we have, in addition to the money that we give, is the talents and capabilities of our people, 300,000 professionals across the globe. Uh, we give, as an organization, $265 million was the societal impact last year. And so we're very proud of that. Of that, $105 million is targeted towards world-class. And what we've tried to do with world-class, we have an overall global uh, target of 50 million individuals that we will impact positively. But we've tried to do that community by community. In uh, the country that I grew up in, in India, 175 million women and girls are uneducated and because they are uneducated, they can't take advantage of everything that the the world offers today. And so our focus in India is on those women and girls. And we are collaborating with a couple of uh, NGOs and we are focused on impacting 10 million women and girls by 2030. Um, In China, it's focused on the left-behind children. As China has rapidly developed and people have left the villages and the countryside to go to uh, cities, there are children that have been left behind with grandparents and others. In Papua New Guinea, uh, we focused on some of the seaweed farmers and making sure that we educated them on how they could really get their worth out of the supply chain and not be exploited. So in every community, it is different. The overall goal is 50 million futures. We've impacted 12 million um, so far. And this, as I said, is the right thing to do. It is also the right business thing to do.
0: I think that might be uh, sort of uh, surprising to a lot of people that initiatives like this can be the, the right business thing to do. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about that and how that ladders up to, to the bottom line, why it is best in the long term to be working on projects like this?
1: Well, I I believe that you can only be successful for the long term. We've been around as an organization for 175 years and you can only be successful as an organization if the communities that you live and work in are thriving. Um, And frankly, it is this broad perspective that you need to take for the longer term to be successful. Now let's take our organization. We don't make a product. Um, Our focus is on serving clients with distinction on hiring the very best individuals and through mentorship, creating leaders, and then giving back to the communities that that we live and work in, that's our purpose. Um, The key component for us as a successful organization is our people. And this generation in particular is really focused on an organization that certainly creates an impact for clients, that certainly creates a bottom line so that we can invest in ourselves but they're really motivated by an organization that gives back and gives back in a very programmatic focused way. That is why it is good for business.
0: Deloitte's World Climate Initiative has multiple pillars, including being climate smart in its decision making and achieving net zero emissions by 2030. But it also has an app and courses in its learning system that gives uh, employees a better understanding of the everyday ways that they can make an impact. Why is educating and engaging the staff such a key factor in tackling climate?
1: Well, our organization really is comprised of the 300,000 individuals. So if you look at climate, there are three from our perspective, the dimensions that we need to be focused on. First, we need to do the right thing in terms of our footprint that we have. And so how we operate and the commitment that we've made is that we will be net zero by 2030. And that will include uh, the buildings that we occupy. It will include the travel that we do. So it's the first dimension is our operation and the commitment that we've made uh, there. The second dimension is the 300,000 incredibly smart, talented individuals that comprise Deloitte. And how do we, uh, through education, through our learning program, which is an incredible uh, a key part of our development uh, schema, how do we get them uh, to understand the facts around climate and what they must do in their personal lives to uh, change their climate footprint? I live in Portland, Oregon, Portland, Oregon, recycles, uh, we we compost, and the education that the city and my community has done has made me, I believe, a better individual in terms of climate. And it's that type of education to influence the 300,000 individuals that comprise Deloitte. And then we, we believe that if we can get them passionate about it, give them the tools and the education, they will then influence their circle of family and friends and maybe we will have an impact much larger than Deloitte. That's a second dimension. Mm -hmm. And the third dimension is Deloitte is the leading professional services firm in the world, $47.6 billion in revenue. We have an ecosystem. We have an ecosystem of suppliers. We have an ecosystem of clients that we work with and other stakeholders. And through example, can we influence them to do right by climate? So those are the three dimensions that we are focused on, education being a critical component for the second and third dimension.
0: And without tools like these, how would that stymie your ability to really move the needle?
1: I think it would sub-optimize what we can do, particularly educating, motivating, galvanizing the 300,000 individuals, and then also impacting our ecosystem of suppliers, of clients, etc. Now, we're not, I mean, we realize that we're a small part, a very small part, of what needs to happen in climate. But we believe as the leading professional services firm that we need to do our part. Everybody needs to do uh, his or her part and every organization needs to do uh, their part to address what is, I believe, the, the issue of our generation.
0: What has surprised you about tackling these massive challenges?
1: The strategy I believe is clear. And so the surprising element has been that while the strategy and what we need to do is pretty clear, the execution of that and being relentlessly persistent on the execution is going to be where we will really have impact. And it's exactly the same in world class as well. You have to do, do this in a persistent way.
0: How can you be truly relentlessly persistent in tackling these
1: challenges? It's no different than the business problems that we solve all the time, either for our clients or for the way that we operate the Deloitte organization. Uh, You need to to first come up with the strategy as to where you're going and the aspiration. We've done that. We've said we'll be net zero by 2030. Uh, It's really important to communicate that to all your people publicly so that you are then held to account. Then you have to set up. A, a program around it uh, with clear leadership, clear accountability, and a certain cadence. We call it sprints. We basically divide the, uh, the year into two sprints. In those sprints, we, we come up with what is it that we're going to achieve, keeping the long-term target in mind in the three dimensions that I talked about for world climate. Who's going to be accountable? How are we going to measure progress? And then we execute for that sprint. And then we will, uh, we will then check at the end of that sprint to see as to how we were doing. So basically dividing the year into two, uh, into two parts. And we make course corrections. There are things that we learn, we make mistakes on, uh, along the way, we try and rectify them, but the fact that we have this cadence established with clear accountability and we are publicly stating what we will achieve and communicating with transparency, with authenticity, and getting people involved has been the recipe for success.
0: Big problems like climate and education, they can seem untackable. Is this a really good reminder that classic project management strategies can still have a key role in getting started on really big challenges?
1: Absolutely. First off, we shouldn't get overwhelmed by what needs to get done. The science has been established. We know what we need to do as a global community. But what we need to do is focus on the things that we can impact. And and I think the same rules, the same techniques that apply to solving other business problems apply to solving bigger societal problems like climate and education and income inequality.
0: You mentioned that in these sprints, people learned that they might need to course correct. With world-class, was there a change that fit that bill, a moment when you thought you'd be taking one approach but pivoted, realizing that something else might be that much better?
1: Uh, Absolutely. I mean, so let's take world-class in India. It isn't enough. We figured this out. I mean, it isn't enough just to provide education. It's really important for us also to get them linked with the careers. It's also important to collaborate with others. We have. Uh, a a really large practice in India, and we've got highly talented individuals that comprise that practice, but they by themselves can't make this happen. And that's why we've collaborated with others that are like-minded to have an impact. And I I think having a, a, a set of passionate leaders is very important as well. And then being persistent results don't happen overnight programs like climate education, Income inequality is going to take time, but everyone needs to start now.
0: You talk about coming back to India and seeing the faces. What's the biggest change that you've seen so people listening have a sense for the before and after?
1: Uh, what education does is gives you, as a, a participant in the program, the self-confidence that you can actually achieve a life better than you believed was destined for you. And I think that is one key takeaway from all of these programs. Um, the second is breaking, breaking some of the orthodoxies. You know, in India, uh, there, and not just for our program, but there is emphasis given to education for the male child and not for the female child. And we believe that, uh, that that's an orthodoxy that absolutely needs to be busted. And uh, this gives you an opportunity to do that. I think then the self-respect once you have a well-paying job so that you're not in a cycle of uh, either exploitation or, or, or not getting the full worth of what you're trying to get done. I think so. those are some of the things that uh, hopefully a program like this will achieve.
0: You were raised in a small town in India and for a time sort of toggled between classwork and work at your family's factory. Can you talk a little bit about that and what it taught you about resilience?
1: Well, I mean, I grew up in a town called Rotak, which is uh, 40 miles west of New Delhi. Um, and I was sent to a boarding school. My parents had, uh, felt there weren't appropriate schools in this little town. So I went to a boarding school. But my father uh, went bankrupt but, uh, uh, when I was 14 years old. So I came back from the boarding school and went to the local school uh, in my hometown. Um You know, there isn't formal bankruptcy in India or certainly wasn't then. He just ran out of money. And so what uh, my brother and I would do is we would go to school and then, of course, help as most many kids have done uh, help in the um, in the in the local factory that my father was still trying to run. You know, it was it was. Uh, a difficult transition for me, uh, being a teenager, coming back from a a lifestyle where I was uh, away to boarding school for nine months of the year, and then being home and having to work. But, and and I don't think I knew about this when I was going through it, uh, but it taught me a few things. One, taking the long view. Mm -hmm. And this was something that my father um, always insisted. He was always an optimist and he was the glass half full type of individual. And The second learning was that this too shall pass. And that's actually been a really good learning as we've navigated this pandemic. As I've talked to my partners and managing directors within Deloitte, I've reinforced the fact that this too shall pass. And it was a learning if you go back, if I go back and reflect on my own life is uh, going through what I was going through as a 14, 15 year old. And then persistence and hard work. Uh, which I believe had been uh, the, the the key calling cards for me uh, was something that I learned there, where you know it took all of us coming together, the family coming together, working hard, trying to make ends meet, and trying to get through what was a difficult time.
0: Can you give us a sense of what that hard work looked like in a typical day?
1: My brother and I would uh, uh, my father would made electrical switch gear, which are cutouts that go on uh, on on poles. And we would sit and uh, with, with a few of the other workers and we would assemble those, uh, those uh, electrical switch gear I mean, and we'd work, we'd work at that. My uncle, who uh, was in business with my father, had a kitchen tool business. So he made spatulas and things like that. So we would work the dye machine. And I rem- remember one week's worth of work led to a Coca-Cola at the end of the week. That was our payment. But, you know, we did goof off as well. Uh, We were typical teenagers and uh, we can talk about this now as if we, it was, it was all uh, work uh, where where we, we had our own uh, level of fun.
0: Mm -hmm. My husband worked in a factory for many years, stamping parts in Detroit, and it was his father's company and he was happy to contribute, but it also helped him learn that he wanted to do something else. Uh, Did you have a similar sense?
1: There was an element of that, but I have to tell you at age 18, if you had lined up all the all of my friends and you'd ask people who would be successful in life, successful being defined as professional success. I don't think anybody would have pointed to me. <laughs> um, and I mean, that's the truth. Uh, at age 18, I was the one that uh, people pointed to and soft voices say, well, what's going to happen to that poor Puneet? And I, I wonder what his parents think about that. Um, and, and so I, at, some, at some level, I knew that I needed to get out of that. And, and the Rotary Foundation scholarship that I got uh, really changed my life. It gave me an opportunity to come to the United States. I came uh, sight unseen to Oregon, never certainly been overseas, never been on an airplane. And it uh, gave, me a, uh, gave me a perspective, now looking back in retrospective, that life is a marathon. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, today, uh, if you look at professional success in that group of friends, all 18 year olds, I'm doing pretty good.
0: You had dropped out of pre med realizing that it just wasn't for you. Can you talk a little bit about that decision and what it taught you about persistence and just moving forward in the direction that you need to go?
1: You know, when I was growing up in India, if you were good in mathematics, you went on an engineering track. If you were not good in mathematics, you went on a medicine track. I went on a pre-med track and realized very quickly that the uh, I, I didn't do well with uh, looking at blood and, uh, and cadavers and, uh, and uh, dissecting small animals. If you had lined me up uh, with all my friends, I would not have been the one that people pointed to because mm-hmm. all my friends were either going into engineering school or into med- medicine and I decided uh, that I would go a different path. I mean, the learnings again for me in retrospect is that if you were to make, uh, make uh, a call at that point in time and you accepted what people were saying about you and typecast yourself, you know, I would have ended up completely different. I refuse to do that at some level. There's only one of you. And what you will see in life is there'll be ups and downs uh, and keep trying to do what, what you get satisfaction out of. Here's another learning that i I mean, I never thought that I was going to be with Deloitte. I was not a very sophisticated individual early on. Uh, I remember coming uh, to the United States and one of the first uh, friends that I had, she was committed to being a doctor. She's now a very successful doctor. I think people who know exactly what they want to do in life, they're very lucky. I think most of most individuals really never focus on what makes them happy and they go through life. I'm in the middle where... I fell into a profession and I taught myself to love it. And that's been part of why I've been successful professionally. If you're in that first group, I think you are blessed. If you know exactly what you want to do, please go follow that and and put the world on fire. If you're in that third group, try and teach yourself to come into the second group. And like me, learn to love the profession that you find yourself in.
0: You took a bit of a sabbatical from Deloitte in 94, and I read that it taught you a little bit about risk-taking and finding what you really want. Can you talk a little bit about that time and the value that you took from it?
1: The big lesson for me was listening to that tiny little voice at the back of my head, uh, which was telling me that it was time to get off the the track that I was on. In 1994, I was being put up to be a partner within Deloitte, and um, that's a big deal. I'd been with the firm now for seven or eight years, and the firm was considering me up for partnership. So, in normal circumstances, you know, you would grab that opportunity. But while I was being successful professionally, I was not being successful uh, just personally. I mean, I put on a little bit of weight. I was not feeling that good. And that little voice at the back of my head kept telling me that I needed to take a break. And so despite the professional advice that I got from my colleagues that I was dumber than rocks, that I was <laughs> trying to take a sabbatical and, and, you know, Deloitte was not as evolved as we are today, that the concept of sabbatical didn't exist, but my managing partner at that point in time felt that it was okay for me to take a break. That is basically what I did. And so I took a break in 1994 and um, I went and traveled the world. But the most uh, amazing thing that happened to me was that I met my wife. And it has, I mean, I've been married to my wife for 25 years. It's changed my life. And I'm, I can tell you the chances of me meeting her would be, would, be, uh, would be very, very limited if I hadn't taken that break. And it took me another couple of years and I did make partner. But in my cohort, in my class of individuals that made partner in 1994, 95, I'm the global CEO, they're not.
0: That brings home a different side of risk-taking. I I think people think of taking risks for business or their career, but they can forget to feed their personal life. Is this a reminder that it's okay to take risks beyond just your job?
1: Absolutely. One of my favorite books is uh, a book that Clay Christensen wrote uh, on how will you measure your life? And as I've aged and uh, I've been thinking about my life's work, certainly what I do at Deloitte is my life's work. I mean, I would have, when I was 15, 16 years old, I would love to have been a great cricketer, but I didn't have the uh, aptitude or the uh, the talent to do that. My life's work is what I do at Deloitte. Mm -hmm. But the second aspect of my life's work is, and I'm using this to make a point, what my 17-year-old son will think of me when he becomes a man is what I do with my family. That is part of my life's work. And I think we have to keep both those perspectives in mind.
0: In March, the very start of the pandemic, you wrote a piece for Deloitte on the five traits of resilient leaders. It was a very uncertain time and there's still many changes ahead. But how did the pandemic change your understanding about what leaders need to be doing to be resilient?
1: Well, when I wrote that in March, I said there are five traits of resilient leaders, empathy, focus, speed, transparency, and forethought or really taking the long view. And frankly, in retrospect, now nine months later, those still resonate. Those are still very important. It's important to have empathy. Everybody has been impacted. It's really important to be focused on the long term, to execute with speed, understand that you will make mistakes, but correct those mistakes and keep executing, and to be completely transparent. I will say that I underestimated uh, the impact of COVID. It certainly had a destructive impact on you, on me. I mean, I haven't had a haircut in nine months. And and so I think, I mean, little things like that to much larger things in terms of the impact that it has had on our communities, the impact that it has had on the people that have uh, suffered with COVID, people that have passed away with COVID. There are two other learnings. One, how important facts are. And that there is only one set of facts, and uh, they're based on science. And then from those facts, how important trust is. Because if we don't trust what we're saying and doing as a as an organization or as a community, it is very difficult to try and address some of the challenges that a pandemic uh, poses.
0: And did the pandemic deepen your understanding of any of those traits?
1: Empathy and transparency are incredibly important. Um, you know, we when as human beings we operate best when we can collaborate when we can we can be in the same room when we can meet and uh, and discuss so for us as an organization a global organization as a community really having uh, empathy in terms of what we are trying to navigate as individuals as a group as an organization as a community is really important but we've also talked about the fact that the future is not preordained we we've been delta a, a hand, we accept that we will do our best to play that hand and make sure that our future is ordained the way we view it to be ordained. And so, yeah. I think that's been um, the, the the transparency and the and, and the notion that the future is not preordained has been a, a a key theme as we've navigated through this, and we're still navigating through. it
0: Regarding the future not being preordained. It seems to me that there's been this theme through your life where you maybe haven't taken a path or a label that someone else thought was expected for you. How do you apply that in your own decision making? How do you make sure that you're carving out your own path?
1: Well, <clears throat> first off, you have to accept that you don't control everything. And in the pandemic is a very good example. I mean, we don't control everything about the pandemic. In fact, we only can control very few elements. Then if you take a view that you play that hand with a certain purpose that drives everything that you do. In our case, as I said, as an organization, our purpose is to make an impact that matters for our clients, for our people and the communities that we live and work in. That is our North Star. And then you apply the, the, the techniques that we talked about, uh, You know, making sure that you have clarity in terms of where you're going, you have clear accountability you're trying to do it in chunks with some speed, acknowledging that you will make mistakes, but you will correct those mistakes as quickly as possible. Those tools and techniques always work. The other uh, piece, and I'm not trying to be overly religious here, uh, is that in the Hindu way, um, there is this notion that you have to do your duty. And that duty is taking pleasure in the act of doing rather than in the outcome. Outcomes are very important. Professional life outcomes are very important. You have to generate bottom line results. You have to generate impact in world climate and world class. But if you take joy in just the act of doing, I believe you end up performing at a much higher level.
0: You've talked today about how life is a marathon. And I know that you run yourself. And I wanted to ask you, what draws you to
1: running? I don't run anymore. I do an old man shuffle, but what running does or what my old man shuffle does is that it gives me an opportunity to try through persistence, do something that I enjoy, but try and achieve a goal. You know, I'm going to run three miles today. There's a start, there's a finish. It requires a certain persistence. My body aches and pains and people Nearly 99% of people that are running at that particular point in time overtake me. I know it's good for me, and uh, I just get the distance done.
0: Is there anything in particular that you uh, think about or think through while you're running?
1: I think about how lucky I am to be alive, that I can actually do my old man shuffle. I have to tell you a real anecdote. This this is the competitive spirit. I live on a hill uh, in Portland, Oregon. And I, my favorite run is to go downhill and then run back up. It's exactly three miles. And so I was doing that and I'm really slow. It's ugly uh, to watch me, but I was running and this young person sped up and, and, uh, and over, overtook me. And, you know, the, at the back of my head, there was a little bit of a, come on, now you can, you, you can keep up. And I didn't, of course I can't. Uh, but as I, came up the hill. I do this often so I know what is required. Uh, About three quarters up the hill, I saw the same young man uh, huffing and puffing and I overtook him. (laughs) For an old man, that was hallelujah.
0: That's Puneet Ranjan. But before we go, don't forget to check out this week's episode of the World Economic Forum podcast, World vs. Virus. Here's a sneak preview. We were
2: getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election. What will you remember from this extraordinary and extraordinarily unpredictable year? On a special episode of World vs. Virus, the podcast from the World Economic Forum, we'll be looking back over the events that made up 2020. Yes, this was the year of the coronavirus, but also the year of Donald Trump, of Black Lives Matter and of Brexit. Get Brexit done uh, with our deal, which is ready to go. Oven ready, slam it in the microwave, it's there. 2020 started with bushfires burning across Australia, illustrating the urgency of the climate crisis.
1: Our house is still on fire. Your inaction is fueling the flames by the hour.
2: But were any of us paying much attention as news emerged of a new virus? Now we are sort of the end of January, so we are about six weeks into this outbreak. This virus can now clearly spread between humans. We soon had to pay attention.
1: COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. Right, and then
2: I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that, Uh, by injection inside or... Join me, Robin Pomeroy, and a special guest from the world of news broadcasting for a look back on the year that many of us would like to forget. Hi, perhaps you recognise me? It's your favourite president? Will you shut up, man? That's coming soon on World vs Virus. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
0: But while I may be the first woman in this office, I will not be the last.
2: World vs Virus from the World Economic Forum.
0: That's a highlight from World vs. Virus, brought to you by host Robin Pomeroy. Get that in all of our World Economic Forum podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other top platforms. Thanks go out to Robin Pomeroy, Gareth Nolan, and Anna Bruce Lockhart for all their help in the production of this episode and all the Meet the Leader episodes. And thanks to you for listening. Please rate and review our podcasts. And for more extensive Q&As from our guests, go online to wef.ch slash podcasts and follow us online on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, and on Twitter using the handle at WEF. This is the last of 2020 as we take a break until the new year. I'm Linda Lucina at the World Economic Forum. Have a great day.